Welcome to the Bethany Community Church Sermon Podcast. Today's message is titled, How to Get Along with Almost Anyone, and it is part of the Good Fight Sermon Series. This ministry is intended to inspire you and help bring solutions to the challenges of life. For more information about other ministries here at Bethany Community Church, check us out at our website at bccma.org or send us an email at office at bccma.org. And now, here's Pastor Phil McCutcheon. Amen. Amen. Praise God. We end this message this, uh, today with this, we end the series "Fight the Good Fight," and uh, there were so many things I wanted to say. Uh, some things just aren't ready to be said because we live in such complicated times. Uh, we live in such complicated times socially and civically and politically, and uh, there's so many things. Uh, have uh, it seems that politics has moved into the religious realm. There's a, there, there's a religious architecture, as the way I like to think of it. There's a religious architecture to 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 political movements today, and so it's very easy to get sidetracked. It's very easy to lose your place, and it's uh, so. I haven't talked about some things that I think are important to be talked about. But I've tried to say to you, uh, speak the truth, uh, speak it in love, and know when to wait on speaking the truth in love. So I want to end today by kind of changing the title. I've been saying every week I've used the phrase, the battle of, fight the battle of civility, uh, the battle of kindness and Today, I just want to give it more of a, a, a broader title, How to Get Along with Almost Anyone. And I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, where it says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men, and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral are godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. I'm going to go back and really zero in, though, on verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all men. <clears throat> We're not in a peaceful world by any stretch of the imagination. We know the tragic events that have happened uh, in the last 24 hours in Pittsburgh and other places around the world. Things are tumultuous. During the last 4,000 years, uh, we've had 4,000 years, in, and according to one person, we've had 268 years of relative peace in 4,000 years. Uh, in the last three centuries, there have been 286 wars on the continent of Europe alone. Uh, there have been in excess of 8,000 peace treaties that have been made and have been broken. So the, the prospects for peace are not very good. I heard of an artist a few years ago who decided he wanted to try to, uh, uh, or a man, not an artist, but a man who wanted an artist to paint the perfect picture of peace. 
so he, he started a contest, and, uh, and he, uh, com- he invited artists from all over the country to give him a painting that would win the contest for the perfect picture of peace. And everybody gathered on the given day, and all paintings were across the stage. And one after another got uncovered, and there were, of course, as you can imagine, beautiful, tranquil scenes, green pastures and blue skies and uh, calm waterways and all of that. Finally, there were only two left, and the first one that he uncovered, it was a picture of a beautiful glass mirror-like lake on a moonlit night. On the, on the grassy shore of the lake was a flock of sheep grazing. And pretty much everybody thought that's probably going to win. Then he uncovered another painting, and that painting was, showed this tumultuous, torrential waterfall where the skies were black and lightning was flashing, and it was so vivid you could, you could feel the cold mist of the water, and you could, you could hear the thunder and uh, craggy rocks and, and, and low-hanging clouds and cool mist of a torrential waterfall. And in the middle of the craggy rocks, there was a, a, a spindly tree. And on one of the spindly branches of that tree was a, a bird's nest. And in the bird's nest was a mother bird setting on her eggs, resting on her eggs. And he announced to the crowd, this is the picture of peace. So God has called you and I to pursue peace with all people. Make every effort. If I say to you, I want you to go visit this person, and I want you to make every effort to be nice to them, you have a clue of what kind of person I'm sending you to visit, right? (laughs) If you have to make every effort, you know, some people you love and some people you learn to love. Lucy Pelling was one of those people we didn't have to learn to love her. We just, it was easy. But some people, you have to learn to love them. It's interesting to me. You know, you know what it, it stands out to me here is something I had never really thought of before, and perhaps you've never thought of it. I've certainly never heard it preached on, or I don't think there are any books about it. And I haven't read any articles about it. And I read a lot of articles, and I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I listen to a lot of sermons. And I haven't heard anybody talk about the fact that the heroes of the faith, you know who the heroes of the faith are. If you read every Hebrews chapter 11, some of you haven't, that's fine. But Hebrews chapter 11 gives us these heroes of faith, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, Daniel, three Hebrew men who went in the fiery furnace and all these incredible heroes of faith. One thing I've never heard talked about is that the heroes of the faith were often good at relationships. Our text addresses peace and purity in the same sentence. You know, we've emphasized the purity of faith of the great men and women who inhabit the Bible, the Old and the New Testament. We've we've emphasized the incredible, powerful purity of their faith. 
we've emphasized the purity of their lives. And that includes, we've, we've had to talk about when they fail to have pure and great faith. And we talk about when they fail to have pure character and pure lives. But it's the same emphasis. Whether you're talking about how they succeeded or how they failed, you're, you're saying that was important. But we haven't said much, in my opinion, and maybe you've been in a different channel and you're tuned to a different channel than I am and you're hearing it. But we haven't heard much about how they made heroic efforts to get along with people, to live in peace, to show humility and deference to their fellow human beings, and to be patient, and to be kind, and to be sweet, and to be loving, and to be all those things that we, all, all those things that help us to have harmony with other human beings. Because there are violent scenes in the Bible. The Old Testament especially. There are violent scenes. So I tend to think of biblical heroes as people who carried swords and daggers and cutting, you know, cutting people up in pieces and stuff like that. They, they did that sometimes as is a part of... You, you, anytime you have... If you have a government, now this, 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 this sounds wrong, and, and I don't like to say it, but I, but I feel like it's necessary to give balance here. Anytime you have, if you have a government that cannot, cannot dispense violence, you are not safe underneath that government. So a part of governance, and this is, what I, this is one of my contentions with those people who want to look at the Old Testament and criticize the Bible and criticize my faith, in the Bible, because, oh, they're, they're, they, they, they killed people, so they couldn't have, your religion is bogus. Well, I would just counter with the most, even the most dovish presidents we have had have, have executed people and killed people. So that's a part of, unfortunately, that's a part of governance. But that doesn't explain the the incredible scenes of these men and women's lives where they were incredibly relationally holy. Uh, one of God's prophets, you know, decides he's not going to pass on God's mercy to a bunch of pagans. And, and God prepared a special hell, hell for him in the form of a fish and he spent three days in intensive, intensive sensitivity training. So he could love bad and different kind of people. So this whole thing of, of bending our lives and shaping our lives and moving into people's lives with, with, with love and mercy and kindness is not just some P.S. in the New Testament. It's not just, we don't have to go to John 17 to, to, to get it. You can start in the book of Genesis. In fact, I want to talk about a few of those people. But first of all, let me give you this quote from Chris Brady that sets this up. Chris Brady said, people behave most selfishly when they think they're about to lose something. So every scene that I can see here where these great heroes of the faith were magnanimous, 
humble, uh, deferential, yielding, giving up their rights as opposed to claiming their rights. It was all situations where they had something to lose. But instead of doubling down and becoming more selfish and more self-centered, they trusted God and they did what was loving and kind. I'll start with Abraham and Lot. Abraham showed us that he was good at unexpected flexibility. Let me read the text to you. So Abraham said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are your brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, imagine this. Abraham is uncle to Lot. Lot is his nephew. Abraham is the one that God called out of Haran when he was 65 or 67 years, 66 years of age. Called him, gave him all the promises of inheriting a land of promise. Gave him all the promises of becoming the father of a great nation. He was the one with the destiny. He was the one with the clout. He was the one with the responsibility. He was the one with the authority. He was the one with the prestige. He was aware of his place in history. And he graciously brought his nephew along. He graciously allows his nephew to come on this success journey. And the blessings that were on Abraham spilled over onto Lot. And both of them prospered. Lot was prospering because of Abraham. And their flocks and their herds and their, their families grew to the extent that their herdsmen began to fight with one another and there wasn't enough room for them and there were two directions to go. If you look one direction towards Sodom, everything was beautiful and it was like a garden. You look the other way, away from with your back to Sodom and it was a bunch of rocks. We had a guide when I was in Israel a number of years ago. He said, uh, there, there's, there's, a, there's a theory that, that God had two handfuls of rocks and he, he distributed one handful of rocks around the rest of the world. The other handful of rocks he distributed and he threw into Palestine. That's what Abraham was looking at. That was the choices. And what would you do? If you're Abraham, what would you do? Your punk kid nephew comes along and he can't control his, his herdsmen. Would you go? Take whatever you want. I'll take whatever land you don't want. I don't know if that grabs you. I don't know if that does anything for you. But that redefines what a man of God is. That redefines what a man of faith is. A man of faith is relational. A man of faith loves. A man of faith is deferential. A man of faith is yielding. A man of faith is humble. A man of faith knows how to say, you can have the best. Abraham, Abraham even, even when Lot, Moses, Lot took the well-watered plains of Sodom, by the way, if you haven't figured that already, he said, oh, great, I'll take, I'll take the well-watered plains of Sodom. 
And he goes there and he gets into all kinds of trouble. And one, one time four kings attacked the five kings of Sodom and took Lot and his family captive. And Abraham heard about it. And Abraham took 318 of his trained men and he went after the four kings and he defeated them and got Lot back. Now that is incredible. Why have not we not talked about the character of Abraham? And we only talk about all the promises that he was able to claim. What about all the love and character that he demonstrated? I heard of a guy, uh, heard of a, a young boy who was at church one day and he needed a ride. And a, a very wealthy man had a, in those days, wealthy people drove big cars. And now, now we don't always drive big cars if we're wealthy. Those days, he drove a big car. So he had a big, like a Lincoln or something. He gives the little boy a, a ride home in this big, fancy car. And the little boy's looking around this car. And this, this wealthy man said, you know, my brother gave me this car. And the little boy thought a minute. And he said, you know what? I'd like to be a brother like that. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, but it was family. It was family. Yeah, Abraham was nice because it was his family. Well, let me tell you something about families. <laughs> uh, between 2001 and 2012, there were three times as many people died from domestic violence than died in Iraq and Afghanistan together. Some of the... How many of you have ever been treated selfishly and hurtfully and painfully by members of your family. Okay, that's 100%. <laughs> and the, of the two liars who didn't raise their hand. <laughs> Abraham never read Romans 12.10, but he modeled it, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves. When we make every effort to live at peace with all people, we show unexpected flexibility. David and Saul, let's talk about them for a minute. Saul, David was good at showing undeserved respect. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 5 and 6, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of King Saul, King Saul, or his, his robe, it was King Saul. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack, to, to attack Saul. Now David, King David, young, he wasn't King David yet. But this young David had gotten hooked up with Saul because he went down and defeated Goliath and he became Saul's right-hand person, King Saul. King Saul, of course, had, was given over to demonic rages and little young David would take his harp and he would play and soothe Saul's troubled and tormented spirit. One day Saul, here's, here's a group of, uh, of he, Saul turns on, uh, you know, he turns on... Uh, Spotify, and it's listening to, to the latest hit song, and, and the, the latest hit song started out like this, Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his ten thousands, and he already had uh, spiritual problems, and he already was insecure, and he was already a jealous man, and he was already small, and he decided he had to get rid of David, he began to try to kill him, and he's chasing him all over that part of the Middle East, and one day, David ends up in a, a, a cave. It kind of gives you an idea of what a rough life he's living now. He's got a handful of misfits. The Bible says they were all in debt. 
and uh, all in distress. Sounds like uh, some of my congregation at times. <laughs> not now, not now, but years ago. <laughs> and he, he, he gets to this place called Craig's of the Wild Goat. Now, if someone tells you well, you're going to move to Craig's of the Wild Goat, you know there's no grass there or trees or, or beautiful streams. So this is David, and he, he, his men are hiding in the back of a cave. And just so happens Saul, Saul takes off with 3,000 of his men. I mean, talk about overkill. I think David had maybe two or 300. He takes off with 3,000 of his men to wipe David off the face of the earth. And Saul, uh, David and his men are in the back of this cave. And, and, and so the, along comes Saul and his men, and, and Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself. And the misfits were all whispering, David, kill him. God has put him into your hands. Kill him. And so David sneaks over and he takes a little piece of the robe. He cuts a piece of his robe off. And he goes back to the corner with the men. And then is when we find the Spirit of God. It says, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I seduce such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. This man who had, been, who had tormented him, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. See, God puts respect and honor in our hearts. God leads us to walk softly toward other human beings. God leads us away from resentment and bitterness and vengeance. Do you go around spewing out venom? toward other people, exposing their vulnerabilities. And you know, when we, when, we, when we go around exposing other people's vulnerabilities, what we're really doing is advertising our own virtue. Do you go around exposing other people's wrong? You know, God cursed Cain when he went and told his, others, his brothers about his father's nakedness. Bears came out of the woods and uh, killed 42 youths when they criticized and made fun of Elisha, calling him old baldy, go up old baldy like Elijah did. And when we are making every effort to live in peace with all people, we show, un, we show deserved and undeserved respect. That is a mark of being a hero of the faith when you and I are people who can show deserved and undeserved respect. I told you last week and gave you the mandate to begin to pray for our president. And begin to lift him up before God. And begin to show him the same kind of respect that David showed to Saul. Let me, let's move on. Let's look at a couple of other virtues that God is calling us to. If we're going to live at peace with all men. Ruth and Naomi. Ruth was good at what I call uncommon loyalty. Ruth chapter 1 verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave or you are turned back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates me. Ruth was Naomi's daughter-in-law. Naomi had left Israel, or Bethel, during a time of famine and moved to Moab. She and her husband, Elimelech. They had two sons, Malon and Chilion. Malon and Chilion married two girls, Ruth and Orpah. Tragically, everyone died except for Orpah and Ruth and Naomi. 
And so Ruth announces, I'm going back to Bethel. I'm going home. Orpah cries and walks away. Ruth cries but gives this famous quote that you've heard in weddings. It's defined loyalty for the last 3,000 years or so. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you die, I will die. Have you, let me ask you, have you brought, bought into this rootless meism of the 21st century? Have you? Have you bought into this not being really attached to anyone? Keeping everybody out of your business? And staying out of everybody else's business? We're paying a big price for it, people. We're paying a big price. Recent intensive psychological research has conclusively proven that the number one cause of depression in the West is not low serotonin levels, but lost connections. There's something, yeah, yeah, you have low serotonin levels, but what causes your serotonin to raise? Friendship, love, affirmation. Having somebody care about you, caring about somebody else, it causes a spike in your serotonin. It's not, the problem is not the serotonin, the problem is the lost connections. Ruth had one, made of, one, made of one motivation. There was no agenda. It wasn't, oh, there's, there's this in, in Bethel, I'm, I'm going to go for that. I, there's money there, there's food there, there's this, no. She had one motivation. She was sharing a story of life with Ruth, and she didn't want to end the story. There was one motivation. I love you. Do you have anybody that you love? That you just love? Are there people that you just love? Or is everybody a, a means to something? Is everybody a, a, a connection to something that you want? I go to Starbucks often enough that they know my name now. So I've gotten to know Karen there. And it's so that I go to the drive-thru, and if, if Karen's on the speaker, she says, Hi, Phil, on the speaker. So I was talking to her the other day. I was inside, and I was talking to her. We, we got talking about what Starbucks really is. It's not the coffee. It's that we want, we're hungry for community. We want a place to sit with others and be together. And they, 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 they have done a masterful job of the psychology of colors. So they create colors that are warm. The, the decor of Starbucks makes you want to relax and lean in. Duncan, you, you're like, I've got to get out of here, you know? Too busy and too bright, you know? So we get talking about this. She, she said, you know, I'm not on social media anymore, she said. I was on, I, I went off Facebook, she said, four years ago. I had 400 friends. Only one of those friends mentioned that I wasn't on Facebook anymore. It dawned on me that she said that. I said, a light went off in my head, it dawned on me. While I do believe social media can certainly facilitate connection, I'm not against it at all. 
But can, it can also give you the illusion of connection. It can give you the illusion that you have 3,000 friends. <laughs> it can give you the illusion that people care about you who don't, not that they dislike you, but they just don't have any connection with you. They don't know your story. I can't preach this strong enough. It's, it's, it's the revival that's needed in the 21st century. I, I can't say it strongly enough. It's the revival that's needed in the 21st century. It's the revival. We need a revival of connection. We need a revival of storytelling. We need a revival of telling our stories and hearing our stories and telling other people our stories. I, I, I will guarantee you in this room we do not know each other's stories. We do not know each other. We come on Sunday morning, we look at the back of one another's head, and we think we had fellowship. God has something better for the people of God. He has something better for the world. We must model connection. By this will all men know that you are disciples because you have love for one another, not because you have the best worship band or the best preacher, which you kind of do, but, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, no, no. It's because you have love one for another. There's connection. We've got to get better at it. In spite of all our virtue signaling and speaking out for the dispossessed and unprivileged, most of society scores a great big F as in failure when it comes to love and loyalty. When we're making every effort to be at peace with everyone, we model uncommon loyalty. Let's end with the greatest hero of all, Jesus, in the culture. Jesus was good at unlimited, unconditional, indiscriminate benevolence. Acts 10.38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with them. Jesus was unconditionally good for humans. Think about it for a minute. Only 500 showed up for his ascension. Only 120 showed up in the upper room after he had risen from the dead. You think you have a hard, you, I think I have a hard time getting people to come out to church. Jesus rose from the dead and he could only get 120 people to come up to the event that he announced. That is just weird, man. You would think that you would think that the 500 would have grown to 5,000 who would have showed up. I mean, even even Ted Cruz and Donald Trump the other night had 100,000 people sign up to come and hear them. Only eight, the venue would only 8,000. 8, and the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of the world, could only get 120. Wow. So, here's my point. My point is all those people that Jesus was healing and blessing didn't even believe in him. Does that tell you what the church's mission should be? Does that kind of tell you what we ought to be doing tomorrow and the rest of the week? We ought to be blessing those who have no interest in our God, no interest in our Jesus, but we should be healing them and blessing them and doing good for them. And our mission is fulfilled. Yes, we want them to cross the line of faith, but in part, our mission is fulfilled just when we, we are fulfilling the mission of Christ, when we walk into that community and we go to our jobs tomorrow and we do good and we bless you know, do good, whatever the scope of your good is. You say, well, I can't raise the dead. I can't open blinded eyes. Well, buy them coffee. Do something. I don't have anything against atheists, by the way, and atheists are certainly capable of being compassionate, but it was Christ followers who showed the way, who built 
the first schools for common people. Before Christ followers built schools, schools were only for the, for the ruling class. It was Christ followers who wanted to teach common people how to read so they could read the scripture. It was Christ followers who built the first hospitals. It was Christ followers who built the first orphanages and the first crisis response organizations like the Red Cross. The reason there's a cross there is because it was Christian. Here's the motto of Christ followers, and it's a tribute to Mother Teresa. People are often unreasonable, irrational, self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind and people may accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives, be kind anyway. If you're successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it's between you and God. It never was between you and them anyway. Finally, Jesus and the people he lived with. <laughs> Jesus was good at unquestioned submission. Luke 2.51, so he went back to Nazareth with them and lived obediently with them. His mother held these things dear, dearly deep within herself. And Jesus matured, growing up in both spirit, body and spirit, blessed by both God and people. Now, Luke chapter 2, verse 41 through 52, we get a snapshot of a 12-year-old Jesus announcing his deity for the first time. It was the annual pilgrimage when the family went to Israel, went to Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus ends up down at the temple with the rabbis, leading them in a deep theological conversation. Eugene Peterson, God rest his soul, but went to be with the Lord this week. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase goes like this. The teachers were all quite taken with him, impressed with the sharpness of his answers, but his parents were not impressed. <laughs> they were upset and hurt. <laughs> Jesus reacted, didn't you know I had to be here dealing with the things of my father? You got a little smart mouth, Jesus there, man. <laughs> the Bible says, according to Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, they had no idea what he was talking about. That's happened with me and my kids a few times. But then we see this pattern, oh boy, we see this pattern of relational holiness that typifies the great men and women of faith. Verse 51, Luke chapter 2, he went back to Nazareth with them and lived obediently with them. This triggered two other amazing responses. One is in Mary's life, because the Bible says she held these things dearly and deeply within herself. And it's why we find Mary at the cross. And Mary's one of the 120 who made it to the upper room. Because she got it. I don't know what happened to Joseph. We just don't know that. But we know Mary got it. But it also did something for Jesus. 
When you do God's work God's way, it does something for you. When you submit where he wants you to submit, and you go for peace where he wants you to go for peace, look what it says. And Jesus matured, verse 52, growing up in both body and spirit, blessed by both God and people. So how does this relate to us? Well, Jesus spoke directly and succinctly. He didn't shrink. God doesn't want you to go out in this world and go into your homes and not speak truth. Then he shut up, though. And he listened without modifying his truth, or our truth. I don't like his truth. It was truth. And he turned into a mature man who would change the world. If he, if he, had, if he had become rebellious, even though he was right, if he had become rebellious... He would have become a bitter and angry young man who throughout his life was feeling misunderstood. But instead of becoming an angry, bitter young man who spent his whole life feeling misunderstood, he waited until the Heavenly Father facilitated his ascendance. That is a part of being a holy man of God. I'm not suggesting we, never, we, we ever compromise with sin, but we have to wait on success. There are places in this community where we need to have success, but we have to wait on God. Now, here's the deal. God has put us in an awkward position. He's put us in a very awkward position. I just got through hearing uh, Joseph Dimitrioff, the president of Continental Bible College in Brussels, Belgium. I just was at a, a conference at on Cape and heard him speak several times. He pastored in Bulgaria during the communist regime and told us really, really chilling stories of the persecution and the oppression that the government put on the church. And Dimitrov made this observation a couple of days ago when I heard him speak. He said something like this. He said, God, he said, here's the position God has put us in. God has intense affection for a world that doesn't care for him and doesn't like him, does not respect him, does not want his authority. And God has called us to be his ambassadors. God has said, go out there to these, this world that I really love and I really want to draw to myself and I'm going to put you in the middle. They don't like me and I'm going to put you right in the middle between them and me. And I want you to show them my love. And I want you to show them my peace. Somebody in your world, they probably don't even know it, but they're waiting on the embodiment of Abraham. They're waiting on the embodiment of David. They're waiting on the embodiment of Ruth. And above all, they're waiting on the embodiment of Jesus. Someone in your circle is destined for a collision with grace. Remember, remember, everyone you meet is seconds away from being a redeemed child of God. Seconds. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. How are we going to do that? By uncommon flex, 
uncommon loyalty, undeserved grace, unexpected flexibility. We're going to do that by what we are and what we do probably before what we say is ever heard. So go, be a holy man of God, holy woman of God in your friendships, your relationships, in the places where it can be seen even before it's heard. Let's pray. Father, I call your people to relational holiness. I call us to follow peace with all men. I call us to make every effort to be lovingly connected with every person that we meet and every person we know. Put steel in our backbone. Put truth in our hearts. Uncompromising truth. But put softness and love in our speech and in our manner. In Jesus' name. This is response time at Bethany. If you're new with us, we normally have prayer partners today, but today we don't have our prayer partners here in the front. So we just invite you to pray. There's communion in the front. There's communion in the back. We invite you to come and receive communion. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you've never made that decision to come over on the side of faith and hope, you've never made it. Today would be a good day. And you know one, a good way to express that is if you just went to the communion station. For you. If you're a visitor, you're a, uh, we, we allow you to serve yourself communion. You just come, and by, by even taking the act of communion, that can be a way of saying, yes, Jesus, come into my life. Change my heart. Amen? Let's come. Let's enter the response.